when hiring, what characteristics do you seek? Leadership potential, always number one. Specific skill sets right behind that. Uh, The ability to work inside a team. And then finally, diversity of thought. And so that's the combination that that we're looking for. We think that folks who are committed to those four pillars will do well with the company and will be able to to thrive because we will provide opportunity and we'll provide responsibility. But we also expect that you will participate and protect the team in the house and be willing to have the hard conversations about the, the nexus of what we do in different communities. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. My guest today is Jire Lynch, founder of the Jire Lynch Company, a leading mixed-use development firm in Washington. Jire is a D.C. native who was raised by two academic parents who nurtured his curiosity and physical ability. While attending Sidwell Friends School, he became a world-class gymnast and was able to attend Stanford University and subsequently was captain of the gymnastics team while there. He also participated in both the 1992 and 1996 Olympic Games, winning a silver medal in 1996 in Atlanta. He started his career at Silicon Graphics in Sunnyvale, California, and was on the t- team that built what became the Googleplex, Google's headquarters. It's in the real estate department there. He subsequently returned to Washington, D.C. in 1998 and started his own company. He talks about his philosophy, which derived from his gymnastics career, using the metaphor of risk, originality, and virtuosity as his guide. He describes his projects and his adaptability during the pandemic. We talk also about his four pillars for hiring and his advice to his 25-year-old self, among other things. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jair Lynch. So Jair, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm pretty excited about it. That's great. So, Jair, could you tell me a little bit about your company and your role, your overall role, and in a high, at a high level? And another question, is the firm still small enough that you stay on top of all deal-making and structuring, or are you more involved in strategic planning and company vision, kind of at a higher level, typically? Well, we are, have been a, a growing company since day one. We grew through the recession. We are growing through this great pandemic. But we, in terms of scale, we're still less than 10 million square feet. 
in the portfolio and the pipeline. And so that does allow me to be involved with each project at specific times and at specific points. But I am at that inflection point where most of my my time, my, my thought is about you know, strategic planning as well as you know, further growth of the company. Good. So you, you've moved beyond the day-to-day looking at every deal type of thing. You've got now enough team to, to do that. That's great. So you have more of a vision perspective at this point, a typical CEO type thought process is where you are now. That's right. Yeah, I, I do not try to play CEO and COO at the same time and actually try to empower the team on many levels and so that each one of our associates can act as leaders in their lanes and can, as we say, punch up to be able to take on more, more responsibility in a structured manner. That's great. That's great. That encourages uh, people to grow in their own career. That's awesome. So your business continues to accelerate despite the pandemic with several recent acquisitions and ongoing development projects, which I'd like to dive into a little bit later. What impacts, either positive or negative, has the pandemic had on your business, Jair? Well, I, I would start with saying the pandemic and the, the other components of our world in the last uh, 12 to 18 months has shaken everyone to their core in so many ways, whether it's from a an awareness of the systematic racism, whether it's the health disparities that are happening in the country, whether it's the divisiveness of the politics, it, it has affected our people first. And so we've had to make room for them to be able to not only express themselves, but to feel safe and to, but, and also be true to their families and spend the time that they need with their families. That has in turn affected the business because we've been providing that kind of room, our team has been resilient, has been thoughtful, has been forward-leaning, and all of that has resulted in the ability to execute on plans that were in place at the end of 2019 and strategic moves that we made in 2018 that included leveraging our expertise with municipalities and other organizations provide fee development services. It also means recommitting to our affordable housing and attainable housing values and goals, and then executing on the institutional level projects that we've had. So having those things in place and having the corporate values in place allowed us to have, uh, to be able to accelerate through this difficult, this past year that was very difficult for many people. That's encouraging for you and your team. That's great. So now let's go back, turn on the Wayback Machine, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your origins, uh, Jay, or your youth and parental experiences and influences. Your parents were both academically oriented. How much influence did your parents have on you? My parents are both immigrants and came to the United States for college and or graduate school, met at Johns Hopkins at the Center of International Studies. And so there was very much a traditional immigrant story in the sense of values, perseverance, and a dedication to academics uh, and a commitment to academics. 
and I flourished inside of that, inside of that 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 household. Always committed to the academic side, being able to also participate in sports and other things to round that out, but recognizing that there was a a determination and a a desire to to advance um, and to have upward mobility. That was important. I think those are values that are uh, indicative of how this country has come together on so many different levels over generations. And so I stepped into that same that same approach and tried to succeed beyond what my parents where my parents did. Did they uh, spend a lot of quality time with you when you were very little and you know kind of encouraging your academic pursuit or your your, your curiosity and thought process? Absolutely. Whether it was in the classroom or outside the classroom. Remember, we live in a great city of Washington, D.C., and, and therefore you can fill a young person's mind with lots of ideas as well mm-hmm. as um, physical things like museums and other, other, other great monuments that really can ground a young person's ideas of, uh, of the world and, and how you know, growth can be, can be achieved over time. Can you mention a couple of examples of how your dad and, and or your mother influenced you to? I think, you know, if you want to ground it in D.C., it was, you know, everything from visiting the Air and Space Museum at eight, nine, ten years old to, to see what the world could be outside this earth. It was being very grounded in service leadership and visiting Rap Incorporated or Martha's Table when 14th Street and U Street were not as uh, dynamic as they are today. At a wide spectrum, you know, my mother was part of the Organization of American States. So we were able to understand that there was a, uh, a three levels of DC. There was a very, very local DC that was indigenous to the, to the folks who've been there for generations. There was a federal DC that was more in line with folks that were work, coming and working for an administration or something. And then there was an international DC because mm-hmm. of the longstanding institutions like the World Bank, the OAS, and many others. And so they were very well-versed at traversing between those three worlds and educating myself and my sister on, on those three worlds and how important they were uh, if you were going to live in a great city like Washington, D.C. It's interesting the way you describe that. Not many people realize what you just said. And it's interesting how those influences that you had could influence your career and your thought process going forward and and probably implored you to want to come back to Washington after you were out west. But we can talk about that in a couple of minutes as we talk about your your, your education. But it's interesting what you just, I, I you know, it's when I, I moved here in 1985 and of course, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and just to come here and realize the vertical aspect of what you just said is, uh, it's amazing. You, and you have people from every country in the world. And my, high, my son went to high school at BCC and he had 40 countries represented at the high school. So it's, it's interesting how, you know, every culture you can think of <laughs> you're exposed to. It's fascinating. You've had had considerable support along the way from both parents and coaches. Anyone you'd like to single out or stories you'd like to share uh, as, as you were growing up, other than what you, what you said about your parents recently? 
Well, if you're talking about prior to going away to school in California, I think yep. there were several institutions, including the people inside them. The school that, that I went to for middle school and high school was Sidwell Friends, and their value structure very much aligned with my parents, uh, a high emphasis on academic excellence, a alignment around the idea of service leadership. And I do think that making sure that I was at a place that where the value structure meshed well really allowed me to see a lot more than a typical high school experience. And I think it prepared me for the next set of challenges as I left. But I also think that it, it, it gave me insight when I, when I came back to D.C., and was able to understand those deep connections that the school has with organizations like Martha's Table or others, and seeing how that was you know, part of the overall lessons beyond just you know, math, science, and, and, and the, the, the core curriculum. There were trips, there were, you know, there were special activities, all of those in, enriching components, I think, you know, really shaped my worldview. And so I think I can name a couple of folks, but I think the institution is really what was uh, aligned with my parents' value structure and, and really helped them allow me to be prepared for the next chapters. So we'll get into this now, of course, your athletic career a little bit. Talk about how you got turned on to, to gymnastics in the first place. I mean, what, what was it that got you started in that, along that it, path? It's becoming fuzzier and fuzzier as I get older, but I do think that the, the going story is that I was exposed to it, like most kids, grazing between several different sports. At mm-hmm. that time, the primary source was the YMCA and being able to learn how to swim, learn sure. how to dive, learn how to play yep. basketball, learn how to play lots of different sports. But the, the story that, that I remember uh, that my father has told is that it, it wasn't that I was the best kid day one. It wasn't, I was, you know, uh, you know, some sort of super talent. I was just the one that got in line more, the one that didn't drift off and walk around outside, the one that went back, went back and wanted to be there, the one that got up and wanted to go to practice. And he saw the slight differences in the, in that behavior leaning more towards gymnastics than others. But it was the, that became the, the calling card of, you know, why he said and why my, both my parents dedicated their many hours and many days of assisting in, in, in the maturation of, of that talent and, and, and growing in that sport. It's interesting how athletics at the level that you are at requires so much dedication time and energy and, and, you know, spirit. My, both of my sons were swimmers and my younger son swam at Princeton University. So I saw that kind of determination. And, and, and to me, gymnastics and swimming, are, <laughs> they take about as much work, if not, you know, pretty close to the same amount of effort. So it's I, I get a sense of what you had to go through to, to get to your career. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, but maybe you can talk a little bit about the transition and why you went to Stanford University. Well, 
I could give you this lofty explanation that sounds like a fairy tale, but the reality is like I approach business, there was an opportunity, there was an opportunity set of schools that would give me the give me the chance to excel in academics and in athletics. There were a smaller set of those schools that actually were on the rise. And then you'd go take your recruiting trip and you fall in love with the palm trees as you, you know, go down Palm (laughs) Drive, right? And then then they've got you. So, So it did start in the basis of, you know, what matches what I want to do in terms of size and scope and scale and things like that. But I got to tell you, I mean, the campus the, 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 and everything else is breathtaking. And therefore, it does have a, a huge influence on, on the decision. Stanford at that point had not won a national championship at a, as a team, but they were, they were slowly but surely recruiting from the East Coast. And that also helps to be around people that you know that you had competed with who had, might have been older than you, but had competed with you in the same region. Um, sure. And so they, they had a national champion uh, and a gentleman named Tim Ryan that was from the East Coast. And there were a couple of other key teammates that were from the East Coast that, that convinced me to, to make that trek. It, back then, it did seem like a complete, California did seem like a completely different world and much more disconnected from the East Coast. So it was a, a significant jump. In. But I, I was... Um, well prepared for it, like I said, both both with a value structure and, and approach to life. Did you look at East Coast uh, schools as well when you were no, working? no. Uh, it was unfortunately with the criteria that I suggested. Uh, you got down to places like UCLA, Stanford, and then after that, you had to start looking at Big Ten schools in the middle of the country. Just because the gymnastics programs weren't strong enough at the other programs. Is that it? Correct. You know, there's Correct. other colleges. Yeah. Got it. Understood. Interesting. Your career at, at Stanford uh, grows pretty quickly there. Talk a little bit about some of the both athletic and academic aspects of being there and what you, what you gained from, from your experience at Stanford. I would sum up my experience at Stanford just really grounding my leadership skills, they may have been sparked at an earlier age, but they weren't well-groomed and well-honed. And so whether it was in the classroom or on the athletic, in the athletic realm, really starting to understand your positioning, your unique, your new, unique selling points, and the need to work hard and work harder than everyone else. Were you first there, in the gym and last out? Usually, yes. At the same same thing with 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 the academics as well. And I think one of the I think the the thing that started to resonate with me was that the sport, like any other major sport, including the professional sports, have rules committees. The NFL does it every year. NBA does that every year with their rules committees. The the Olympic sports often are wait until the end of a cycle to do so. So they're much more poignant when they happen after Olympic Games. And so when I had when I arrived in the cycle in that that 1988 to 92 cycle, the sport still used in a 10.0 system and used a 
mechanism to differentiate between athletes that had three components, risk, originality, and virtuosity. And so if you met all other criteria, you got to a 9.4. If you showed risk, you got two tenths. If you showed originality, you you got two tenths. And if you showed virtuosity, you got two tenths. And that's how you got a chance to get to a 10.0. And so that, that concept, that ROV concept, really started to make its way into the other parts of of my Stanford experience. Can you explain um, how that's measured? I mean, virtuosity in gymnastics to me is that's because uh, I have never been a gymnast. I don't understand it. So maybe you can explain what that means. There, there may be a, an ideal way of which a, a sequence or a set of tricks are done. And it may be in the book looking one way. And if you're as close to the book as possible or accentuated even further, there's a difference between a dunk that just gets over the rim and a dunk in which someone is three feet above the rim. Uh, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. And so if you're able to show that, then you're able to get these bonus credits. But that ROV concept started to embed itself into other parts of my Stanford career, including the, you know, all the academic side. Um, and so you know, when you chose a project to work on, when you, when you approached a paper, when all of those things, you know, are you going to stick to the four corners of the assignment? Are you going to make suggestions that may be considered risky? Are you going to provide a thread to XYZ submission that is original? And so I would consistently start to embed that into everything I was doing and it started working into my leadership style and it's became has still part of the way we think about how the business is run, which is um, I think is the one thing that that the thread that pulls all the way through. So you always feel like you have to be a little bit over the top. <laughs> it seems like on what you do, you know, beyond what what's expected. So you're saying, okay, well, this is this is the four walls of the of the room, but. There's got to be something outside those four walls that makes some sense to add to it or to expand the room a little bit more. Is that That's true? right. And you have to manage that, that risk if you're going to take it. And you have, to, you have to execute it with precision. And so I, I think that uh, the sport has moved away from that. It's a vestige of a, a, a yesteryear. But I, I do think that that's uh, there's some, there's some important qualities in, in that in that trio of, of attributes. So you you led you became the captain of the gymnastics team. How did you do academically? Did you excel there at Stanford? I mean, were you an honor student? Yes, I was an honor student. But I also recognized that taking classes that were challenging were important to me. So I wasn't looking to game the system um, mm-hmm. and be safe. I very much thought that the college experience was about expanding your, your knowledge and your ability to, to be the ability to think and, and work through mm-hmm. things. And so, so yes, I, I very much, very much took my academics beyond just the grade. Really, sure. where was it, where was it going to leverage my understanding of the world? 
um, and how that could be layered into any of the work that I would do going forward. And then how was your experience at the Olympic Games? I mean, you went, I think you went in two, participated in two different uh, Olympics. Explain the differences between the two and what you learned from one to the next out of curiosity. I remember correctly, Tom Brady went to the Super Bowl his, his rookie year and then went, didn't go for several years afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. it, you are so, you, there's a world of difference between being 20 and being 24, the maturation of a young man or you know, of any person. But at 20, I was not a veteran by any means of the international scene, had not been vetted, so to speak, by the judges at several world championships, youngest member of the team. And so I needed the, those first games in order to be able to cement name, style, approach, everything and at Barcelona and then needed to hunker down and put in the long work to get to another games in Atlanta, which is sufficient motivation, being able to compete in your own country. And then had to return to that, bringing everything I had learned the previous years as being a captain of the team and bringing that team, the U.S. team at that point, along to, um, to perform at a high level in Atlanta. There was um, a significant difference to approach. As you can imagine, as an athlete, you see the fireworks and the pomp and circumstance that comes on television. And as a 20-year-old young athlete, you are a little awestruck by it. And then you are very much understand that you are coming to take care of business when you arrive in Atlanta and you walk through the same set of pomp and circumstance, but with a completely different perspective and can see through it and recognize that you're there with a, with a very specific mission and objective and you have to stay focused on it. Well, the listeners are not able to see what you're wearing, but you have a t-shirt that says Cassius Clay on it right now. And when you mentioned the Atlanta Olympics, I think of that moment where he lit the, uh, lit the flame uh, in an exotic way, as I recall. That's right. <laughs> that must have influenced you a bit, I imagine. Did that, did that give you an uh, inspiration? From a distance, I think you are much more reserved um, as you return to your second games. You know you can, you can revisit some of those moments, but uh, they, they were definitely in the context of there to take care of a specific mission. Sure. Sure. I, mean, I guess what I'm going with that is, did he inspire you? Has he inspired you as an athlete? Just out of curiosity. His, oh, his well, I mean, th- there, were, there were several athletes that were, you know, a generation before me that, were, that, I, that, I, that I looked up to. You know, by then, Michael Jordan was the best athlete in the world. But so was Scotty. You know, Scotty Pippen was also his number two. There mm-hmm. were, you know, there were plenty of athletes if you go back two or three generations if you want to go back to to Jackie Robinson and and then you move through the 60s with Muhammad Ali and mm-hmm. um, others and so there were I wouldn't say there was one athlete that that I would put at the top of the pinnacle because you had to learn from all of them mm-hmm. and you had to understand what decade they were in what was the, the times that they were working in and what they could and couldn't do and and so yeah I I would say there were there were there are still athletes today that I I look to and say 
and there's another example of perseverance and, and hard work uh, and or many other attributes, uh, he being a diplomat, a diplomat or an activist. Um, and so uh, sure. I think you, we all look to sports for inspiration in lots of ways, even when you're an athlete. So recent articles have been written about Olympic athletes struggling after their Olympic careers, coming back after all the time, even if they won, they struggled coming back. How were you able to transition back after devoting so much time and training in your career, uh, in, in that career? I had the, the benefit of sitting on the United States Olympic Committee's board from 2004 to 2012 and essentially carried the briefcase of Peter Uberoth and other great board executives. But what I learned during that period is the business of sport, and you don't really get insights to that, or you didn't get insights to that in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. I think athletes now are much more attuned to understand that they that their hard work is valued, but they are part of a larger business and therefore prepare better. I think in the 80s and 90s, there was a a dream of getting on a Wheaties box, but not a clarity that only one in 10,000 athletes get on the Wheaties box. And so I do think that athletes are better prepared, and that's why we're having conversations about NCAA athletes and whether they should get paid. And the Olympic Committee and the Olympic movement is much more focused on keeping athletes involved in sports so that they can reach their peak, even if it's beyond their college years. If, if I remember correctly, I believe that the average age of Olympian now is 28. I don't think that was the case in the 80s and 90s. I bet you it was 21. And it's primarily because there weren't the systems and funding in place to let those athletes get to their peak and have the financial support, have the locations to train in to be able to continue their quest and get to their you know, second games and give them a better chance of getting on the podium. So I think the transition has, has greatly, the transition of athletes from sport to business has improved dramatically, not only because of their work, but I think the USOC and part of my time at the USOC board was to beef up their job opportunity program and mentoring program so that that transition would be a, a smoother one. It's interesting. Michael Phelps has been interviewed and talks about it quite a bit, his transition back. And he went through a very difficult time, apparently, to try to adapt. But uh, um, he came to a values proposition with himself and was able to do it. So it was interesting to read about that. I don't know if you have other colleagues that, that you had that might have struggled a little bit in their, in their return, some of the, your teammates, et cetera. Curious, were there any that struggled that you knew of? Uh, no, I, I do think that um, you have to remember in 1992, that was the first year that the, you, that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, allowed essentially professional athletes across the board. There were a few sports that were crossing the line in the winter sports, especially earlier and Basketball, the arrival of the dream team really did yep. 
move the needle for all sports, for all athletes mm-hmm. to kind of move into a situation in which there was the ability to receive compensation from the sport. Although, albeit the NCAA kept most of those athletes still in an amateur status. And so most of the athletes that I grew up with in the 70s and 80s knew that there was a there was a very hard stop and there wasn't a way to monetize their athletic prowess. And so that's different in a different circumstances for Michael Phelps in 2008 and beyond. Because at that point, all sports had moved. If you're outside of NCAA, all sports had moved to a place where it was a business side of, 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 the, of the endeavor. Sure. Switching back to your career path, you studied civil engineering and urban design at Stanford. Were those studies the inspiration for your real estate career, or did you have an earlier inspiration, out of curiosity? No, I think those were the, the two. I, I, I tell people all the time that um, civil engineer gave me the, the micro components, and urban design gave me the macro components. Um, mm-hmm. As you can imagine, civil engineering talked about how the bridge was built. Urban design yeah. talked about why there was a bridge over right. those railroad tracks right. and why one part of the city developed and another's didn't. And so it, it very much gave me the, the, the brackets, as I said, for um, an entrance into real estate and allowed me to kind of push forward and understand, understand the, third, the third leg of the stool, which was business. Sure. So you, you were scouting around for what to study there, or did you have a good idea when you came into Stanford that this is what the direction you were going to go? I understand that most people today are changing their, their major six times before they yeah. finish. Um, yeah. I, I, I was not of that ilk. I did spend uh-huh. the first year trying to determine what subset of engineering, what subset that, that went with, that, that leveraged off the core competencies that I had learned in high school of math and science. But I think the exposure that my parents provided to me, as I, as I mentioned, understanding what, what DC was all about, and then traveling with them and or with sport helped me hone in on urban design and how cities and places come together. So after graduating from Stanford, you, uh, you joined Silicon Graphics in the real estate division. How did that opportunity arise and what did you learn there? That was a really important time in my life because I was still training for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned, there was not a robust Olympic jobs opportunity program that could allow me to have the ability to work as well as train. And so I had to... S- to basically sculpt that. And there were some important people, including a, a gentleman named Ken Coleman, that saw the merit, saw the team building aspects, and, and saw the, the inspirational component of which my work, as well as my athletic endeavors, would, would help the company. But I had to perform at, you know, on the job and had to help them with a campus relocation and consolidation, not only in Mountain View, California, but also, you know, in several other sites around the country and was part of a team. Uh, I always say I, I carried the briefcase of Don Young for several years, but very proud of being on a team that developed, you know, several corporate campuses in that area. One that's now a, a museum 
for uh, Silicon Valley and the others, Google's campus. It's almost 30 years since we developed that campus and it's still standing as one of, you know, one of the largest companies in the world right now. So I know every piece of that campus from developing that for Silicon Graphics uh, on that team as a young graduate 25, 30 years ago. So you learned a lot in that stint that you were there. Absolutely. Learned about public-private partnerships, learned about fast-track development, learned about office R&D. And as I tell folks, as the youngest person on the team doing most of the grunt work, the place where I was able to show some value was that we were building spaces for people my age at that point, 20, 25 years old. And therefore, I was look, looked upon to provide perspective. And instead of you know, a one-off flipping comment, I went and did, they gave me the time and the resources to go do research to prove out the thesis about what these computer scientists wanted in terms of a, a, a great work environment. And so the insertion of, which all seem completely normal now, but the insertion of athletic facilities, the insertion of cafeterias, the, the, mm-hmm. the salons and everything else, all the creature comforts that the young computer scientist is looking for. I spent the time and made the, the pitch to, to my superiors of what was needed to create a world-class corporate campus. Um, and so very proud, very lucky and very proud that, that they took many of the ideas that I, that I put on the table and was able to prove out and it's still being utilized today. Wow, that experience, you would think, wow, why would he leave? Why would he want to leave and come back to the East Coast? I mean, why not stay and what, you know, follow on with that, gro- that amazing growth that the Silicon Valley has shown over the last 30 years or so? Well, that amazing growth is really on the engineer side, not there. As you can imagine, there's, there's also the real estate side, so I don't want to discount it completely, but I felt a, a, a commitment to come back to Washington where I grew up and especially after being gone for almost 10 years and still seeing many of the same scars that had been there for 20, 30 years prior and wanting to be part of the change of the city. And reorienting it beyond the specific nodes that were there in the 80s, like a la K Street. And I saw great opportunity and not many people were willing to go to those locations. And I, and I was, and with a, a customer-centric philosophy, I felt like I could create products that would attract a younger clientele to places that they had never been before. And now we call that 14th Street. And now we call that U Street and several other the emerging neighborhoods like H Street or Capitol Riverfront. So you were at the cutting edge of the millennial insurgency into Washington, basically, then to some extent. Is that, would that be an accurate statement? Uh, even before the, the millennials, it was, I was looking at folks that were Gen X in, at, at, in 95. And yes, it was looking at those demographic changes that were happening and the millennials coming behind it and then adapting for that, for that cohort. But yes, it was getting out in front of what is numbers that we all see, but you have to be able to digest them and distill them 
eliminate the noise and actually see what long-term trends are going to be and, and, and to be able to get out in front of those. So what was your original business plan and how did it grow from there as a company? And how did you start your company also? Well, I started my company. That point was a little bit new, but today is not with a laptop and a cell phone slash pager. Um, <laughs> but the, the notion of the company from day one was to work in emerging neighborhoods and deliver great real estate projects. The bulk of the business starting out was to rebuild the public infrastructure and public assets, or I'll call neighborhood assets, in places that had, been, had seen disinvestment for 20, 30 years. And so we started developing on behalf of clients things that people need every day, libraries and recreation centers and other public assets, and slowly but surely investing nearby in housing and commercial. And then from there, just growing the business to where it is today, where we are investing um, at an institutional scale, but still committed to those core values of making sure that that place is has that every place has all the tools it needs to to thrive. Your company competed and was awarded the contract with DC Parks and Recreation in 2001. Was that a major major catalyst to your growth? Winning it that was. It, it was competing against the likes of CBRE and the rest. Um, it was a major coup. It was applying everything I had learned, not only at Stanford, not only at Silicon Graphics, but I had learned from my parents and framing a customer-focused or customer-centric focus for what the new fleet of, or, of recreation centers needed to be, I think differentiated us from someone who just talked about the bricks and sticks and the execution of it. And what, because we were convincing that we could create place I, I believe we were able to win that and then successfully execute on those several assets across, 10 assets across the How did you convince them your ideas of place? I mean, what, what aspects of, the, of your proposal were unique in your mind? Pulling demographic information, providing that up front, describing what limited information we had about preferences. It applies to anything, whether it's, an apartment building, whether it's a recreation center, whether it's a, a QSR, one community had produced a great swimmer. And so we, we proposed that a pool should be discussed with the community at this one location in Tacoma. And today that pool has produced dozens and dozens of swimmers, great swimmers. There was a natatorium in Capitol Hill that there was a discussion of you know, eliminating the pool because it was expensive. They didn't realize that there were several people from Capitol Hill and Congress and the Senate that used that pool. <laughs> yep. And so providing some clarity of their customer, I think, differentiated us against the other competition. Interesting. So you looked at a government facility as being a customer-oriented enterprise to some extent, as opposed to just a place that the neighborhood people would go and hang out in, more or less, or... Recreation that's, or that's exactly right. You know, whether it's a movie theater or whether it's a library, at one point or another, you have to ask the question of 
how many people are going to be coming through the turnstile. Mm -hmm. And who's the customer and what do they need? And what do they need? And are you addressing it? And does that have other spillover effects in terms of economic development? And are you Mm -hmm. harnessing that? So when you started out, what was your strategy for raising capital for your investments at the time when you first got going? Well, as you can imagine, it was pulling together, you know, my own two nickels, like most developers, reinvesting in the company from any and any and all profits as a result from the consulting side of the business. And then slowly but surely co-investing with other developers to further understand the financing process. Folks like Ernie Marcus and others that I invested with, they taught me a lot. People like Don Tucker, who really helped me understand the affordable housing, the specialization around affordable housing finance. And then slowly but surely in setting a course towards being able to execute projects at an institutional level. Well, that segues to my next question. And At some point... You met our mutual friend, John Green, while he led the local office of McFarland Partners. And then they, at one point, provided a significant entity-level investment over roughly $120 million to you to your company. How did that arise, and how have you deployed that capital since then? 2005, I thought it was, we were at an important juncture with the company's growth. And I went and spent a year at Harvard through the Loeb Fellowship, where I was able to get the appropriate separation from the business to be able to reflect on where it was going. And and spent that year really thinking about the strategic path. And at the end of that, recognized that that despite some early warning signals from the joint housing studies and other organizations in Boston, that we may be heading towards darker times, there was a clarity about what downtown adjacent neighborhoods were going to be and how they were going to continue to grow and appreciate. And so I recognized that there was a need for not only real estate capital, but also private equity in the company to allow it to grow at a a different trajectory. And, and so went out to the market and, and looked for those type of dual investments and did not find them in DC, or I didn't have the Rolodex accordingly to get there. But in New York and in San Francisco, there were un- numerous organizations that were looking to, as I say, uh, capture pipeline and or grow businesses. And we, we chose to uh, work with McFarland partners that were where the, the whole notion of their investment was to grow businesses. And so I had the good fortune of working not only with Victor, but also with John Green. But it was several years of looking for the right opportunity and, and the right partner that would allow us to grow. And so it was a, a very painstaking and long process, but it, I knew the stakes were high and that that was going to set our course for um, five to 10 years. Their entity level investment as well as private equity investment was all deployed in 2010 and 2011 as we emerged from the Great Recession. And we had 
significant round trips that were completed between 2014 and 2016 that allowed us to essentially graduate from that type of arrangement with private equity into various investment vehicles now with some of the largest pension funds as well as investment houses in the country, which has been just fabulous. Well, needless to say, that investment was a major catapult for your company's growth, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So it seems your roots as a company were development. Recently, you formed a venture with Nuveen to acquire properties. Are you now attempting to balance the risk in your portfolio between development and operating properties? Why don't you give us a little uh, overview of that thought process? We had actually committed to long-term ownership early in the maturation of the company, but we weren't able to do that at scale. And as we are able to move our current development assets into a core portfolio, we felt it was appropriate to double down with other stabilized properties that we would either we would buy. And so through the lens of an attainable housing strategy, we have continued to to roll out that strategy in, in Maryland, Virginia, and in DC, and have been very fortunate that Naveen is fueling our ideas to grow that to a very large portfolio over time. So what's the lens you look at as far as looking at deals? In that framework, I assume it's different than a framework of development within the city wall, the city itself. So talk a little bit about your criteria for looking at new deals, uh, Chair. There is a thread that, that runs across them all. We've walked through kind of the origins of my education and the value structure. And so I very much think about some basic urban design principles that force you to start at a 10 to 20 year vision and then come all from the macro all the way down to the micro of what's happening on, at the asset today. And that's more of the civil engineering side. So the, the investment criteria for us, you know, is that we are very much have a place-based strategy that is about building or buying assets in strategic locations and not just taking a product and, and being able to move that out across various geographies. And so we can concentrate on all the dynamics that are happening in a place, um, whether, you know, again, a customer-centric approach we can figure out what are the pieces that are missing, what are the pieces that are working, where are their early investments that could change the trajectory of a place, and how can we be part of that change over time. A perfect example, no surprise to many, is our acquisition in Woodbridge, Virginia, while outside the city, has some several of the same components that you would find in some of the assets that we we've purchased or built in the district, which is that connection to mass transit through the VRE and, and the future investment in VRE that's happening at the state level to bring people from Woodbridge, even Richmond, to jobs that are closer in. It, you may not, it may not be obvious, but the, the Green Line in Washington, D.C. opened in 1999 when I came back and started the company and very much saw that the nexus of, of future growth was going to be around this new metro line at that point, very much underutilized uh, and brand new compared to 
the tried and true line at that point, which was the red line. Now the green line, I believe, is the most active of the of the metro lines. And we think that VRE, a, a commit long-term commitment to VRE, that there will also be growth in that corridor. And we may see the same from the silver line out in 66, which ties to us another one of our investments from last year, which is in Herndon, Virginia. Well, with Amazon's amazing growth potential, they're not going to be able to house everyone in Arlington. (laughs) (laughs) There will be people commuting in there. And of course, the Pentagon's there naturally. So big draw. So it appears in reviewing your portfolio that you continue to seek and execute on fee development for nonprofits and the governments, as well as ownership opportunities. How do you prioritize your those activities with your owned properties within your team? Well, all our assets are important. And as I indicated, we have the incentives and, and checks, the balance balances and checks to be able to make sure that they're all performing. But to, to us, our fee development business, as I tell folks, is really our give back. We're not going to wait until we're 50 years old to be able to start giving back to the community. We're working in communities that are living and breathing now, and a lot of them are suffered from disinvestment. And so for us, to, we want to give back to these communities now. And one of the ways that we can do that is by providing our intellectual capital to these neighborhoods so they have the tools to grow on their own. And we don't wait until, until I retire to be able to do that. That's a good philosophy. And did you start that from day one in your thought process? That yes, thinking? especially arriving back in places like 14th Street and 8th Street that were ravaged by the riots in 68, but were essentially struggling and had not reached a, a, any type of momentum or flywheel in 98 when, when I came back to D.C. So talk about some of your more prominent projects, both completed and as well as ongoing, that you're proud of right now? And what are the elements of it that kind of play into the philosophies that you've talked about uh, in this discussion? I would say our project that we had purchased in 2011, which was an entire city block in the 8th Street corridor that allowed us to demonstrate our skills as it relates to both housing, office, as well as retail, all in a mixed-use fashion. In that case, over multiple phases, we really think that our work there on the south side of the 600 block of 8th Street and Insight's work across the street really created a hub for the 8th Street corridor, bringing new life into the corridor without taking away from its history and its prominence over several generations. So we were really proud of that. The jewel of that one is the Anthology Project, which is a mixed-use housing and retail project that won many awards, but the most important story that came out of that was consistent with the theme that we've been talking about, which is a customer-centric approach. We had recognized that there were that there was this very important institution just a few blocks off of Beach Street that often stood behind large gates and really didn't interact with the community, but yet there were thousands of students inside that gate and that place was valued at university. Mm-hmm. And so we made a, a, a specific analysis of you know where they're living and where they're spending their dollars and 
when we were going through our merchandising plan for retail, we shared that with Starbucks. They picked up on that kind of customer-centric approach and uh, committed to, to building their first unit with Deaf Architecture. And if you haven't been there, I, I highly encourage, encourage you to go because I think it's a, <laughs> one of our early commitments to the diversity of our customer base by a corporation. And we hope that we had helped them see the light on that. They executed the vision, so by no means are we taking anything away from them, but that's the type of development that we want and the type of stories that we want to happen at our projects. And so we're very proud of that. It's funny. I, when you mentioned that Starbucks, I smiled because I met somebody there. I was just looking on a map. Okay, where's the nearest place we can meet for coffee? And so we met there. And I didn't realize that it, what it was. And I noticed I locked in there. And no one said anything. And mm-hmm. It was quiet, it was completely quiet. And I said, this is strange <laughs> at a Starbucks particularly. So I go in the mm-hmm. line and then they started moving their hands. I said, oh, now I get it. <laughs> and so I had to write down what I wanted physically. You right. know? And it's, uh, it was quite an experience, but I appreciate it because I recognize the proximity to Gallaudet. And right. I've met some of the real estate people at Gallaudet. And it's an interesting situation. What JBG is doing there is interesting as well, mm-hmm. at least what they're planning to do. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, John Green has uh, shared with me some of the thoughts that you had there as well with his investment uh, with that. It's quite a project. And, you know, I, I've been tracking that market for a while. Uh, I met with Jim Abdo when he bought that, uh, Children's Museum and converted mm-hmm. that property. I think that was really the first major investment in that corridor, as I recall. That's right. That's right. Next generation of deals. And then uh, the guy Stewart had a project there where Giant Food is, which is, I think, the third, th- third street block with Stan Slaughter's project above it. So that's mm-hmm. a, those are really good projects. And that kind of kicked it off. And yours is a good one. Talk about some other ones. In 2020, We're very proud of the delivery of the Martin Luther King Library. As I mentioned before, rooted in the history of D.C., I'm well aware when when that opened in one of the first major buildings in Washington, D.C. that was dedicated to Martin Luther King, but yet it had suffered from disinvestment for decades. And there was a commitment from the mayor, Mayor Bowser, to fund at a major level, the, the reimagining of this essentially public center. It's still called the Martin Luther King Library, but it's much more than that now. It has retail. It has a conference center. It has a, it has a maker space. It has children's area. I mean, it, it just, it has cross-functional agencies that, that can hotel there, whether it's the passport office or the Department of Employment Services. I think D.C. and its chief librarian, Rich Galvalon, really understood his customer and how that could expand with the use of this historic Mies van der Rohe building. And we were, were just tickled pink to be able to be part of that redevelopment and, and seeing that to fruition on time and within budget um, as the pandemic was slamming down on all of us. And, and really hope that when it's open at its 
at 100% that you'll see three to 5,000 people go there every, every day. Uh, and that would really enliven the downtown in a way that we haven't seen and, and really be a, a place for, for everyone because there's something there for everyone. It's interesting you say that about the library there, and I haven't seen it yet. I'd love to see it. But there are two other libraries that I've seen that have been redeveloped recently in the city. And it tells me that there must be, this fellow that runs the library group there must be a visionary person because the one that I saw that, that Anthony Lanier was involved in developing over next to the fire station on 22nd and M Street. I don't know if you've seen that project, Jair. And, mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. And, then, and then the other one is up in Cleveland Park that I've actually had meetings in, which is the, old, the one up there on Connecticut Avenue. It's state-of-the-art library seems to me. I mean, it's really cool settings and they almost, you know, there was some vision behind the thought process of the layout and everything. Well, it started with, with chief, former chief librarian, Jenny Cooper. As you know, these, these things take years and her vision started in 2005, I believe. And really the Martin Luther King library is the end of the program essentially, or close to the end of the program with the, the cornerstone project being the Martin Luther King Library. So you had several mayors, several board chairs. It's been a, a, a great experience working with really good people who are willing to be bold and set the city forth on this course for the next 20 years that really could empower a, a lot of folks. Looking at your overall portfolio, you've invested in apartments, office, and retail along with fee development development schools, libraries, recreation centers, and special purpose buildings. Was this diversity of product type intentional or evolutionary, such that opportunities evolved from public fee-based to private ownership-based investments? I've worked with Christopher Leinberger for, for many years inside when he was working at Brookings, now at GW, and, and with the organization Locus, which is a subset of Smart Growth America. Mm-hmm. And he describes it best. I didn't put this moniker on us, but he said the, the developer of our last generation really was a race car driver. Drive fast, turn left. <laughs> Primarily because they specialized in a specific product and essentially moved to new geographies and went national with that. He says the developer of, of walkable urban places of this generation are more like fighter pilots, where they, they are required to fly up, fly down, left, right, sometimes upside down as well. And so I agree with that concept. From day one, we were committed to the ability to execute across asset classes and have built the, built the team accordingly. And as a result, we're able to, to execute the business plan. But that was, a, that was a novel idea to cut across those asset classes 20 years ago. I, I do believe that's becoming more the norm now that you have to be able to understand and you, have to, you still have to make the, a comparable decision of whether you're going to be a specialist with wide geography or you're going to be a mile deep in a specific market and specific markets of which you can execute on in, in multiple strategies. And, and that's, that's what we've chosen. It appears that you've been at the leading edge a little bit of it because 
the way I see real estate over the last 10 years, certainly, is that all the uses are blending together, it seems. Mm-hmm. So mixed-use development, of course, has is, is grown dramatically. And you're seeing uses put together that hadn't even been thought about before. Certainly when I was a young person, a shopping center was that. It was just a shopping mm-hmm. center. An office building was just an office building. You would, even in, in many cases, you had no retail at all within the building. And, and apartment buildings would typically be in the suburbs on stick built and you drive to everything. So everything was driving oriented. So Chris Leinberger's theme makes a whole, whole lot of sense because in essence, you had to blend everything together anyway. And so your thought process is a good one. It's more location-based, understanding it from place and then build the place, build what to the place needs in essence, it sounds like. Well, yes. And you can use retail as a perfect example. Not every place is over-retailed, but the country is over-retailed. And therefore, we're going to have some significant structural changes to happen. We're going to happen over the next 10 years. Where do you see opportunities going forward as we eventually emerge from the pandemic? Do you see change in the human behavior as a result affecting your strategy? I do think that we will have additive components to our repertoire as it relates to how we live and work that we hadn't had before. And I, don't, I can start and stop with the video calls and, and all the rest. I do think that it will be integrated, but messy. There will be success <laughs> stories from the right that will tell you that, you know, you don't need an office and everything will, everything can be done remotely, completely digital nomads. And then you'll hear, you know, stories from the left side of the goalpost to tell you that you absolutely need an office in order to establish strategy and culture and, and the rest. And, and the reality is it's, we're going to customize to one, which is what we've been doing with so many other parts of our society and our and overall economic model. It was unheard of 10 years ago, 20 years ago, to have a commercial or have a, the cover of a newspaper be adjusted for specific markets. But now it's perfectly normal. It was unheard of to change, to have multiple covers for a magazine, depending on the market. That is perfectly, you know, part of business now. It was unheard of to even have streaming of movies, you know, and now we have it. And and we're at that inflection point with how we're going to consume entertainment. And so I am not afraid of the change. I look forward to it. I think that we have to stay in front of it. That's the key. Our job, as we say in the office all the time, is our job is that we have to anticipate. Sure. We have to anticipate markets. We have to anticipate issues that may happen on projects. And so I'm invigorated by having yet another inflection point. If you remember, I, w- I was in the early 90s was at the, the forefront of the, the internet becoming widespread and very much embraced those times and, and thought of them as ways in which we can reimagine what offices at that point, what office was going to look like. And I look forward to reimagining what office will look like in the, for the next 20 years, what residential will look like and where that will happen. I go back to Chris Leinberger, who said even five years ago before the pandemic that there were w- more walkable urban places outside the, the four corners of the District of Columbia than there were inside, mm-hmm. regionally significant ones. Mm-hmm. And so we were already 
making sure that the portfolio was balanced well before the pandemic because we saw that there was going to be growth in those locations. And so now we may have to look a little further (laughs) than we thought. There may be a new list that comes out as a result of it, but that's fine. And we should be encouraged as long as we are keeping the region at the forefront, as long as we're still figuring out how the region stays competitive, then I think it's great that we're going to have the maturation of place happening in in lots of different parts of of the, the DMV. You recently participated in a transportation forum where you spoke about TOD development with a flywheel approach to public investment leading to private investment creating value. The pandemic accelerated trends that you mentioned, and you mentioned that we may need to be more flexible and faster in adapting to change. Perhaps discuss your thoughts a bit further as we emerge from the pandemic. I'll set the table by saying that it is really unfortunate that we're having a K-shaped recovery that is exposing the systematic issues that are in our economy, in our health system, and, and many other components. And so I think it is the real estate industry as a whole that has to be conscious of that and find solutions that actually will make it better. That often starts with the local municipality that will have to look at everything from where they allow people to eat, where they're going to see revenue coming from. And is that from the parking meter? Is it from the business that's actually opened? and the sales tax that might, be, that might be generated from that business being open, and the trade-offs of the parking meter out front and, and the business on the corner. From there to places like the Office of Planning or the planning offices of any of these municipalities who I think are going to be forced to reckon with these long, drawn-out, comprehensive plan updates that often take years, and D.C. is not alone in this, but I think planning is going to have to be much more responsive to what's happening on the ground and therefore will have to shorten their timeframes and provide more clarity so that we can get from behind this large obstacle that we have around affordable housing or quality of life or, heat or, or commute times. And so I think that's where the, the, the early investments, the early policies that come from both local municipalities and hopefully from a federal national policy on, on housing and other things. It is no secret that there's about $400 billion of subsidies towards housing that happen in this country every year. 320 of them are towards mortgage interest reduction and other components like that, where only 80 of it's going to community development and neighborhood development. So we've got to really reckon with the entrenchment of certain aspects that will further accentuate this K-straight recovery. And we have to get out in front of those things with a combination of both public and private investment. Let me talk about two contrasting trends that are sometimes difficult to deal with from the development community. (laughs) One is the, what I call nimbyism, which is entrenchment with certain residents that, and then people throwing bombs basically into into proposed development projects with legal challenges, et cetera, to try to, on the planning aspect, that's one aspect. And the other one on the, on the other side of the coin is gentrification, which is the, the rapid growth of certain markets, B 
because of economic demand by uh, by citizens moving in to neighborhoods that are established. And then all of a sudden, the pricing gets to the point where people can't afford to still live there. Mm-hmm. So, so those are two interesting dynamics. And the District of Columbia is a perfect example of that. So talk about those issues and whether that relates to this flywheel approach you're talking about. I heard gentrification is one. What was the first one? Well, the first one is the the nimbyism, which NIMBYism. is the whole, yeah, the whole, and that's part of it, but it's, you know, some people are actually engaged just to be disruptive in the process. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be, it would be easy to try to, to, to put the blame of, of nimbyism at the feet of a specific agency. I, it, it is, it is a worldwide phenomenon. It happens in all countries. So we're not, trapped by our own history within, within the U.S. borders. But it can be accentuated. If you think of it like a, the volume on a stereo, we may be at volume seven, where Shanghai is at volume three. But there's nimbyism you know, in every place. And how you deal with it is, is really what we have to come to grips with. I think we've gotten to the point where there we've paralyzed, I would say paralyzed, a lot of the comprehensive plans and the the land use policies across the country to the point where we are woefully behind in terms of production that would allow for a market to stabilize and not have the massive increases that we see in either property tax and or rent. When you get down to to the dynamics that happen for a homeowner, I always go to, you know, what is, what is the public will? If you want to use Washington, D.C. as an example, the Shaw neighborhood and others was primarily a homeownership place uh, in the row houses and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And gentrification really was a two-sided coin in a homeownership situation where you may have had families that couldn't keep up with the taxes. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a public will issue that I think needs to be addressed. And there should be an ability for the passing on of generational wealth that is not stymied by taxes that may be less than 1% or 2% of the value of a home. And there should be ways in which we should be able to protect that, that, the passing on of generational wealth in those situations, especially in the African-American community that is so woefully behind in terms of, of wealth. You know, often the numbers are often saying that, that for every hundred dollars that a, a white family may have in generational wealth, a black family may have 10% of that. We can fix a lot of that with policy. As it relates to rent, that too is a global issue that we need to produce housing that meets people where they are and unfortunately, the, we're unable to, to do that when building a home in a transit-oriented location near Metro for someone who makes $60,000 often creates a gap of half of the, of the cost to build it. And therefore, we have to really look to see what are our national policies and local policies that would support the creation of that housing for that very worthy person who's making $60,000. And looking past the, the layered components, I, I always laugh and cry at the same time when we recognize that 
right now in Washington, D.C., a one-person household at 60% AMI, which is the cutoff point to be able to get federal tax credits, is about 50, 55,000. But because the high need and, and the desire for great teachers, often our charter school clients and other folks who, who are hiring teachers are hiring at $60,000, right above the, the 60% mark. Yet we don't have the coordination to, to make sure that they too could be part of a national housing policy uh, at a middle income level. Um, you know, we applaud Mayor Bowser, who has initiated a middle income program that will hopefully be able to address some of that. But it takes public will in order to be able to build that unit for that, that teacher on the rental side. And it's will and edu- education, too. I mean, people need to understand True. what those issues are. Right. And you just mentioned a number I'd never heard before. I mean, that disparency, which is interesting. I mean, oh, yeah. I think it just, you just need to let people know about it. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's when you can point, you can turn the mirror back on the real estate industry. We have, yep. have been just terrible at communicating the basics to the You're point right. where we've allowed folks to emotionally entrench around the concepts of NIMBYism without any uh, dismantling of that in public education that could explain the, the real hurdles to, to producing housing at, at different levels. We all have to start pulling in the right direction in order to be able to uh, address this. The Urban Land Institute exists for that reason, is to educate the public and, you know, I think. But I still think there are some people that just don't have an open mind to what realities are when they, as they look around themselves and are somewhat self-interested, unfortunately, but that's just the way it is. <laughs> um, that's why I made that distinction between home ownership and the approach to home ownership is often uh, protective of my home values, while the energy around rent is it, it's outstripping my ability, my my cost of living increases that's happening at my job. So those are, mm-hmm. those are two different sure. constituencies and voices. And, and unfortunately, they get lumped together when the real estate industry should be clear about their position in each one of those lanes. Agreed. So recent articles have suggested that the urban growth with intense density may slacken for several reasons, including high real estate values, aging demographics leading millennials to seek less expensive and more spacious housing, reduced use of transit, et cetera, during the, during the pandemic. What are your reaction to these trends? I think we're going to continue to get lots of, of articles. Consensus view is not going to be there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you're going to get on both sides of the goalposts, you're going to get people saying that we're going to have to really urbanize even more in order to create the supply that's necessary to stabilize pricing for the people who are where, to meet people where they are. And then the others is going to be, we're going to be completely digital nomads and none of your folks are going to even be in the region. They're going to live in places like Boise or, <laughs> or Florida, who are, is seen a, a material increase in population. I don't think that either one of those are going to be absolutes. And so, like I said, Five, 10 years ago, Chris Leinberger was saying, we are going to reimagine suburbs over the next 10 to 20 years. And he's right. I don't think it's going to be a, a, as much as it was in the past, a either or, but a both and. 
we will be in both places. We will be seeking opportunities in both places and helping to transform places for the future. But I don't see that we will be shutting down our hyper-urban spaces. There was a lifestyle that we've had in before the pandemic that was happening at the street level and the theater that went along with that. And I think that will come back very much, just like I think sports and concerts will come back. Uh, it just will have to be uh, under the right circumstances and we'll have to have the right protocols. Mm-hmm. There is someone out there today that's, that's essentially coming up with a COVID super rapid testing kit that you would be able to, to uh, utilize before you get on an airplane or before you walk into a stadium. Mm-hmm. I think people, entrepreneurs will fill those markets in order to be able to allow for these large pillars of our economic system to come back. Let's just see if it comes back uh, evenly across the, across, the, across the board. Or will the Des Moines Music Hall take 10 years while the anthem at Southwest take one year? That's well, what we have question, to figure out. The, the other issue is more immediate, which with restaurants, hotels, and other things. Will they have the financial wherewithal to withstand the lack of demand for much m- longer period of time before bankruptcies, et cetera. So there's probably going to be a, an expungement of the industry to some extent, and then a re, reemergence at the point, at the point, right moment, I would assume, but we'll see. That's right. And, and it will be interesting of how quickly each one of these pieces happen or come back, whether industry or geography, how quickly do they come back? Mm-hmm. So let's uh, shift gears to your company for a minute. Talk about your culture and what you want to inspire in your colleagues. Of course, you had a lot of themes we've talked about, but more specifically, when hiring, what characteristics do you seek? Leadership potential, always number one. Specific skill sets right behind that. Uh, The ability to work inside a team. And then finally, diversity of thought. And so that's the combination that that we're looking for. We think that folks who are committed to those four pillars will do well with the company and we'll be able to, to thrive because we will provide opportunity and we'll provide responsibility. But we also expect that you will participate and protect the team in the house and be willing to have the hard conversations about the, the nexus of what we do in different communities. How do you evaluate a prospective employee? I mean, what, do you ask certain questions that kind of lead to the, those four pillars or, or do you have them take a test or what do you do to kind of screen uh, people for, to be able to understand that? We have a, a, a layered approach. I, I don't suggest that I am the, the absolute best interviewer, but we have certain people in the office who participate with, with hires that are able to suss very quickly, the DNA uh, of a candidate. And we like the candidates that, that can show us those pillars very quickly. And those are the ones that usually rise to the top. So you mentioned the four pillars. Do you have a, a mission statement as a company that employs all those? that you? Yes, support? absolutely. Yes, we do. We have a mission statement. We have core values. We have a purpose. Yes, we've spent the time to make sure that those are 
relevant to everyone in the company, that they are built by folks in the company, and that they provide us a North Star of where we're going together. And we rely on that to, to make sure that we have strong retention. We have had folks who have been with the companies you know, for over 15 years, and they are leaders now in the company. And, and I think it's because we have those key pillars that, that bring us together and give us a reason to thrive. That's great. So, Jair, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? I think that at 25 years old, depending on the person, there's still a, a balance that needs to be determined. And I always say the balance is the you know, independence is on one end and interdependence is on the other. That pendulum is moving towards uh, independence. But you quickly realize that you are, you may be becoming independent from your parents. You may be graduating from school. You may be starting these new chapters, but you are still going to be highly dependent on relationships, highly dependent on your connections, and that those are fostered over time and they are, they have to be cultivated uh, and nurtured. And so what I find is that at 25, you, you, you're driving toward independence and therefore you think you can do it by yourself. And, and the reality is, is that you need a multi-layered, multi-dimensional team around you for, for all components of your growth, whether it's uh, in the workplace and or, and or outside the workplace. That delicate balance between those two is is something that I, that I would provide any 25-year-old now. The other is that you've you got to remain curious because there could be a, a tendency to dive in at a level that you are simply following orders and responding and not thinking outside of that four corners, that box that you talked about earlier. And I think keeping that concept of risk originality and virtuosity at the back of my mind was was really important. And I would want every 25-year-old to do the same. That's inspiring. So if you could post a billboard, a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Jayer? Shared responsibility. Those two words. That's it. That's very good. I like that. Anything else you'd like to say before we uh, conclude our conversation? No, this has been great to take that journey back all the way to when I was a child. It, it uh, was just, just wonderful. So thank you so much. Well, the thread of what you learned certainly came through. And I really appreciate your time, Jayer. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Okay. okay. All right. Sounds great. Thank you. So thank you for listening to uh, our, my discussion with uh, Jayer Lynch, who was quite an individual and he's done quite a job and from his youth all the way to leading a predominantly uh, interesting development company here in Washington, D.C. So as usual, I'm bringing in my postscript uh, commentator, Tom Amos. Tom, welcome. Thank you, John. How are you today? Doing well. Good, good. Yeah, so let's just jump right in there. Yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, and Jair talked about the library here in D.C. 
It's actually just down the street from from where I live and really admire the building. A, a beautiful matte black building, kind of a rare example of modern architecture here in DC. You know, we've got a lot of historic looking buildings, but it really jumps out to you and um, really would encourage any of the listeners, if they have a chance in their they're over in DC to to take a look at it. And um, Jair was talking about the transition with COVID, and and I know that they have the facility open in some type of smaller capacity right now. But every time I walk by there, there's there's a line of people trying to get in. So really cool building that that the listeners should check out. It's interesting. Uh, we talked about it a little bit more than just that building because I've seen two other library developments, redevelopments here in the city as well in Washington. One in uh, Cleveland Park, which is a quite a stark project, interesting project that was done. And the other one's in uh, the West End, right next to Fire Station there, which uh, Anthony Lanier did, uh, which I haven't actually been inside. I did a tour, but it was under construction. And it was a fascinating mixed-use development that uh, they did there. Yeah. So there are, I think, as I said, the library person he talked about as being very visionary in uh, working that through. And I think that's a great space for all DC residents to take advantage of any of the libraries in the city. So yeah, anyway. they, they really uh, let the creative juices go on those library projects there for, for the architects. They, uh, it seems like they give them a lot of rain to, to run with. So the other thing I wanted to just quickly clarify for the listeners, something that a term maybe I've heard in the past, but I had to go back and look this up. You guys talk about uh, NIMBYism with Jair. And I just wanted to point out to listeners, that's not in my backyard. We're kind of this concept of people moving in and kind of losing that region or, or, or area's um, culture kind of with it. And, you know, growing up, this was very relevant for me. I grew up in Hartford County, Maryland, and uh, my family's been there for generations. I know that my parents were always grateful there, there would be, you know, a new housing development down the street that would go in on an old farm that they've known for, for years and years. And, and they always love to point out that the people that moved in were the ones that were most upset that more people would move in after them, right? They, they wanted to move in and then stop right there. <laughs> I thought that was a concept worth, worth pointing out to the listeners here. I think that's a human trend. Of, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon that people have. It's kind of almost going back to nature of a nesting kind of philosophy. So if you're a bird nesting, you want to protect the nest from any other violations of the nest. So you can look at that kind of as a philosophical over, overlay there a little bit, is that once you have your nest, that you want to preserve it. And change is not, is not necessarily good for the family unit per se. And I think that thought process goes into the urban setting such that, you know, if you've been in a home for 20, 30, 40 years, let's say, and all of a sudden change is happening in the neighborhood that has an impact on your normal routine and or your your view or whatever it has, you're going to react to it, maybe positively or negatively. We see that constantly. And I think, again, it's human nature to some extent. But some people feel look positively at that. Others don't. But I think as you get older, you, your viewpoint of things changes a little bit more. Where you're young, you want change. 
when you're older, you want you're a little more set in your ways. That's a trend that isn't always true, but it's certainly a trend that mm-hmm. I notice. Absolutely. The last topic I wanted to cover through the whole interview, it wasn't mentioned, and I think this is just uh, Jair's modesty, but uh, that Jair won a uh, silver medal in the uh, parallel bars event in 1996 in the Atlanta Olympics. So I couldn't help but think about a study that was done. It was for the 1992 Olympics. What this group did was they looked at individuals that won the silver medal and individuals that won the bronze medal. And so they compared post-event interviews. They looked at photos of these individuals on the podium. And the interesting thing was that generally the silver medalist, and I I don't think this is applicable to Jair, but I, I thought it was an interesting topic to cover here today, was that they found that the silver medalists generally appeared to be much more unhappy than the bronze winners at at the Olympic events. And so, you know, why is that? I I think that, you know, the study goes into this being this concept of of framing, right? So you win a silver medal, you're focused on, wow, I was short by just this much. And if I just done these couple of things, I could have had the gold medal. Whereas the bronze medalists in most cases are going, wow, I'm so lucky to have been able to win a medal versus the field that that was not. And so it's an interesting concept. It, it plays into, you know, a lot of things aside outside of the Olympics, right? You know, comparing yourself to to other people, whether it's career or, or success or money or something like that. And just, you know, having a healthy framework to 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 look at that, you know, with how lucky you are as an individual, not necessarily comparing yourself to to others. I always enjoy, you know, hearing about that study. Comparison is a wicked thing. (laughs) Comparison is one of the more difficult things. Comparing somebody to another person, comparing yourself to somebody else, comparing your effort to somebody else's effort is really not fair in many ways because the goals often are different, you know. So one person's goal of doing an effort may be a totally different goal than somebody else's goal of doing an effort. If it's a competition, everyone has the same goal, okay, usually, to win. So, okay, you don't win. You know, Michael Jordan made in his career, maybe he made maybe half his shots, 50% of his shots, but the other half, he said, you know, I didn't make, so I didn't win. So, I mean, framing is a key phrase. It's interesting. You can always look at things depending on the perspective that you're coming at it with. And in real estate, let's just say you're competing for a huge project, you know, win, a big development project in the city or wherever, and you're in, there are 10 teams competing and Inevitably, you know, one person, one group is going to win. So you should frame up right at the beginning. You should say, okay, we're going to give it our best shot. But if we don't win, we're going to learn along the way. Mm-hmm. We're going to do all we can to get it. But then if we don't get it, we should look back and say, look what we accomplished to get to this point yeah. and appreciate that. So yeah. to me, that's the, that's the mindset I think you need to take and in that in that thought process. So my bet is that J- Jair 
was very pleased because he is a very philosophical person and looked back. He said, you know, I, I didn't medal in 92, but here I got a silver medal. So, wow, I should be really happy. Right. That that probably makes his story a little bit different than, than others at times too, you know? Uh, And he mentioned that in the interview about, he kind of alludes to the fact of uh, the success, the the second go round versus the first. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. self improve right? That That's really. That's the key, you know, I mean, how you measure against your own results and don't compare with other people. So if you're going to compare, compare with what you did yesterday or last year or something like that, keep it internal and say, okay, I'm going to do better than I did yesterday and keep, keep that mindset. And I think it's good for everyone to think about it that way, frankly. Good, that's, that's um, all we have today. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that. And listeners, thank you. 